Well, it is Good Friday, and so therefore it is natural for us to look upon the sufferings of Christ. It's a day for us to think about the cross, think about what Christ has done on our behalf. But this evening, I don't want us to just focus on the suffering. Don't want us to just look at the pain, but for us to look at the person. I don't want us to gaze at Christ at a distance, but I want us to draw near to our Savior in the short time we have this evening. And so therefore, we're going to look this evening at three aspects of Christ's sufferings so that we would deepen our love for our Savior. Three aspects of Christ's sufferings so that we would deepen our love for our Savior. And we're going to do that by studying the Apostle Peter's comments in 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have a personal copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. You can use the Bibles and the pew racks directly in front of you if you don't have your own and find it on page 1,213. 1,213. But 1 Peter chapter 2. Now Peter wrote this book to believers who were scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. And they weren't just scattered and having a nice, comfortable time. They were scattered and being persecuted. Nero was the Roman emperor at the time, and he made Christians the scapegoat for the fire that he had set in the city of Rome. And so this made Christians targets of hatred and animosity that spread from Rome across the whole empire. And so Peter wrote this letter to encourage the believers to stand firm and to continue to cling to Christ in the midst of this adversity. In chapter 2, he directs his attention to instructing the readers on how they're to act as Christians in different circumstances and relationships. In verses 11 and 12, he speaks generally to believers' behavior in the midst of an unbelieving world. Then in verses 13 through 17, he states that Christians are to be submissive to their government and therefore honor the Lord. And then in verses 18 through 25, he turns to address servants or slaves. And it's particularly uh, in this relationship that people who are slaves or servants were abused or exploited. And you can understand why. To be a slave meant that they could have a nice and gentle master, or it could mean that they have an evil and abusive, unjust master. And yet Peter says that they are to be submissive and endure the suffering, no matter what kind of master they have, because this is a beautiful thing in the sight of God. Then, in verse 21, he directs his readers to the example of Christ. And this is where we will pick it up this evening and begin reading. So follow along as I read in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now verse 21 makes clear that Peter first points to Christ because he wants his readers to learn from Christ's example. He wants Christ to be a model for their lives. They should endure suffering in the similar way that Christ endured suffering. And verse 22 and 23 tell us that this suffering by Christ was without sin. It was without deceit. It was without retaliation. And it was with complete trust upon his father. And so by pointing to the example of Christ, Peter is saying that there are points of similarities between Christ's sufferings and a Christian's sufferings. Lessons can be learned by looking to Christ and seeing how he endured. But Peter cannot go to the cruel suffering of his Lord and his Savior, his friend, without having his gaze in humble adoration at what made Jesus' sufferings unique. It's as if he took us to the cross for one purpose, but he's drawn in by the beauty and by the love and the glory, and so he pauses and helps us to go deeper. That's what verses 24 and 25 are about. Peter shifts his focus from the similarities we share with Christ's sufferings to the dissimilarities. And this brings us to the three aspects of Christ's unique sufferings that are highlighted in this passage. Looking at these will hopefully help us to love Christ with greater affection tonight. The first aspect that we see in this passage is that the nature of Christ's sufferings was sacrifice. The nature of his sufferings was sacrifice. We see this in the first part of verse 24. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. This statement really gets at the heart of the gospel. It describes the fundamental reality of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus bore our sins while he suffered on the cross. Peter here is saying that our sins were placed on Jesus. He took as a burden our sins. This same concept is clearly stated in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, where the author says that Christ had been offered once to bear the sins of many. But more importantly is the Old Testament background of this passage. And as we heard earlier this evening when Luke read from Isaiah 52 and 53, that chapter, those verses were clearly on Peter's mind as he's penning this letter to his dear readers spread throughout the Roman Empire. You You can't but help see how Isaiah 53 bleeds through his text here. Back in verse 22, he quoted from Isaiah 53, 9. In verse 23, he referenced Isaiah 53, 7. Here in verse 24, Peter pulls from Isaiah 53, verse 4, verse 5, verse 11, and verse 12. And then in verse 25, he alludes to chapter 53, verse 6. 
That's seven references in four verses. It's clearly on his mind as he writes this. And so as we see this this phrase here that, that he himself bore our sins, he clearly pulled directly from Isaiah 53. Verse Isaiah 53, 4 says that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 11 says he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many. And verse 6 says the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, Christ took the burden of our sin on Calvary. But this leads us to the question of why. Why did we need Jesus to bear our sins in his body on the tree? And this is where the word of God makes abundantly clear that we are all sinners and fall short of his glory and of his perfect standard. None of us are righteous. And all of us have an infinite debt racked up against an infinitely holy God. Not only have we sinned against our holy creator, but we can't deal with our sin. We can't cleanse our hearts. We can't get rid of this sin on our own. We can't take them away. Oh, we can try to forget them or ignore them, but God doesn't forget them and God doesn't ignore them. They stand forever between us and the Lord. And the reality is that the history of of religion is the story of of mankind trying to clean himself up, trying to make himself presentable. Trying to do away with the guilt. But the reality is, is all efforts are vain. We can't come to God on our own terms. We must come to him on his terms. On our own, we are lost. We are hopeless. We are damned. But folks, this is what makes Jesus' sacrifice so sweet. In the cross, we see this holy God acting on our behalf. He did not leave us in our sin. He did not leave us in our condemned state. Since man first fell in the garden back in Genesis chapter 3, he has been executing his plan to win them back that culminated in his son dying upon the cross. I want you to notice here in verse 24 whose sins that he took. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By using our, Peter identifies and includes himself with his readers. He is saying he believes that he himself is a sinner and that Christ needed to take his sin, not just other people's sin. He personalized what Christ did upon the cross. He realized that he needed Jesus too. So that causes us to ask, are my sins included? Can I say that Christ bore my sins on the cross? Friends, this is the essence of faith in Christ. You must believe that when Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross in 33 AD, that he paid a penalty for your sins. If you believe Christ died in your place, taking the punishment that you deserved, then you can say that he himself bore your sins in his body on the tree. That is the hope that we have. And in this, we see that the sacrifice of Jesus was fundamentally substitutionary. 
meaning that he was the substitute for us. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus took our place. He stood where we deserved to stand. He took the wrath that we deserved. He was damned so that we could be redeemed. But before you can say that Christ died for you, you need to realize that Christ died because of you. It was because of your wretched and sinful condition that he had to go to the cross in the first place. When Christ bore our sins, the Father thought of our sins as belonging to Christ. There was a judicial transaction that took place. In the courtroom of heaven, the Father counted our sins as belonging to Christ and therefore punished him appropriately. It's a little strange in this verse that Peter says that Jesus died on the tree. It's not the normal word for cross that we see throughout the New Testament. Some translations translate it cross here, and appropriately so. It's legitimate. It means uh, literally wood, or could mean an object formed out of wood. And I think this strange word choice used by Peter is meant to draw our minds back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, and a truth that Paul declares in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, which I will read for you. In Galatians 3, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Deuteronomy chapter 21 says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ became that curse for us. He stood in our place. By using the word tree, I believe Peter is helping us to see yet again how Christ stood in that place for us. Taking the curse that our sins deserved. Jesus took the curse that hung over our heads by hanging on the tree. He took the curse He took the guilt. He took the shame. But in looking at this great transaction, in which our sins are passed to Christ and they are punished upon the Son of God, we can be tempted to think of it in simply transactional terms. But Peter doesn't want us to miss the personal nature of what Christ did for us. So let's not miss that tonight. Notice that he says, beginning of the verse, he Himself bore our sins. And himself is emphasized and put forward in the sentence, even in the, in the original language. Peter wants us to see that it was himself. It was nobody else. No one else could fill this role. Only Jesus Christ of Nazareth could be the sin bearer for us. And it was he himself Meaning that he offered himself. He willingly and voluntarily went to the cross on our behalf. No one forced him. No one twisted his arm. Jesus, knowing the great sacrifice that it was, willingly went on our behalf. See that Jesus himself bore your sins in his body on the tree that day. Friends, doesn't this draw us to our Savior? Doesn't it cause our hearts to love him all the more? Because of his love for you and me, he willingly took our sins upon himself. 
He was treated unjustly in this. He was willing to be treated as a liar, to be punished as an abuser, to be treated as a thief and a murderer, to be punished as if he was a violent, angry man, as if he was sexually immoral, as if he was sexually abusive. He was willing to be treated as if he was a hate-filled racist, as if he had spoken hurtful things to the people around him, cheated on his spouse, neglected his children, been angry at his father, distrusted him, as he was willing to be treated and receive the punishment for everything that he was not. And yet this is the great sacrifice that he accomplished on our behalf. And so the first aspect of Christ's sufferings we see in this passage is the nature of his sufferings was sacrifice. Well, the second aspect that we see is that the purpose of Christ's sufferings was transformation. The purpose that he went to the cross was transformation. Let's see this at the the second half of verse 24. He, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The second half of verse 24 begins with the word that or so that. And this indicates purpose. Peter is indicating that the purpose for which Christ paid for our sins on the cross was that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In other words, the reason Christ did what he did for us was that our hearts and our lives would be totally transformed. This is what Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 6, that we died to sin when we placed our faith in him. At the moment of conversion, believers are freed from the penalty of sin. We can no longer be condemned. We are also set free from sin's bondage. We are no longer slaves to its passions and the desires. And over the course of our Christian lives, we increasingly sin less and less. And this is part of progressive sanctification. But being set free from sin, we aren't brought to some neutral ground where we just float in limbo land. Being set free from sin, we are then launched into living for righteousness. There's a positive aspect to our lives. If we're putting off and and dying to the negative aspect, the positive aspect is living for righteousness, Peter says. This living for righteousness, Peter doesn't get into here, but we know is only made possible because Christ conquered death. It's because Christ rose from the grave that we will celebrate in a few days that there is new life because he defeated death. In order to live this new life of righteousness, We don't just need our slate washed clean. We didn't just need our record of guilt erased. We needed to be made completely new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, a verse no doubt you're familiar with, says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friends, if you're in Christ This morning, if you have placed your faith in him, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. 
The Spirit has regenerated your dead heart and given you spiritual life where there once was spiritual death. And when our hearts are made new, we want to live righteously. We want to live according to God's law. We want to do what pleases Him. And so the righteousness that Peter speaks about here is practical righteousness. In our justification, we were declared righteous. That's a one-time declaration by God that, that God makes and says that we are righteous in him, and therefore in, our, in his eyes, positionally, we are righteous. But we all know that even at the moment of conversion, there's still lots of sin in us. And there's lots of ways in which we live, and we are not making righteous decisions. That's our practical righteousness. That is what we endeavor to work on through our Christian lives, to live more and more righteously in the sight of God. It's right behavior. It's thoughts, words, and actions that align with God's word. And so I think there are are two points worth noting here as he mentions living to righteousness. The first point is that a true mark of one who is a disciple of Christ is that he is decreasing in sin and increasing in righteousness. If these realities do not characterize someone, then it is fair to ask whether that person has actually experienced the transforming gaze of Christ suffering on their behalf. Peter says that Jesus died so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. This is not a secret power that might be activated by some Christians and not others. If Christ bore your sins, then you will live for his glory. Because he's given you his spirit to be able to do that. Jesus did not die to get, just to get us out of hell, although he did do that. The scriptures say that he died to transform our hearts and lives, that we might live differently. Our behavior will be different if we know Christ. Our speech will be different. We will be different people. The second point to note from this is that we should have as a daily goal to live righteously. Now, we live in a day when righteousness or righteous living is mocked and ridiculed. If, just imagine you walked up to your classmates or coworkers and you just announced that you're endeavoring to live righteously or trying to be holy. And in our day and age, it comes across as someone who's trying to be a goody two-shoes and someone who is just trying to look better in the eyes of other people. What is celebrated today is to be real and authentic. And what they mean by that is to uh, try to just show how uh, there is impurity and unrighteousness and different sides of your character. You want it all to spill out. And so when someone, when they hear about a holy person, it sounds disingenuous, it sounds fake. If you say you want to live righteous and live holy, it sounds like you want to be a whitewashed Pharisee. But friends, we must be among the first to admit that we indeed are sinners, that we are far from perfect, but we must value righteousness and strive for it in our daily lives. Christ suffered and died so that we might live for righteousness. 
How dare we settle for anything less? Christ suffered and died so that we might live for his glory. We can't settle for simply struggling with something. We can't settle for simply knowing what's right and what's wrong and just leaving it there. We must live to be righteous in the power of the Spirit. Once again, Peter reminds us why we are able to live this way. He says, by his wounds, you have been healed. Why are you able to live righteously? Because you've been healed. You've been healed by the wounds of Christ. This is another reference to Isaiah 53, this time verse 5. Now this phrase doesn't make sense from a medical point of view. The physician's wounds heals the sick patient. How does that work? Well, it makes perfect sense theologically. This is not speaking of physical healing, that somehow through the cross of Christ we will not get sick. All of us can attest that we have gotten ill since our conversion. We know that ultimate physical healing will not come until we are transferred to glory. But what this declares is that our deepest and greatest problem has been cured. The wounds of our sin have been healed by the wounds of our Savior. We have been healed from eternal death. We have been healed from our sin. We have been forgiven. We have been restored to fellowship with our loving God. Friends, you have been healed. Your Savior was wounded, struck down, killed, so that you might be made whole. Your soul restored to right relationship with its creator. Our love for Christ should deepen as we see the purpose of his sufferings was our transformation. And friends, let us not settle for anything less. Lastly tonight, we'll see that the result of Christ's sufferings was restoration. The result of Christ's sufferings was restoration. Look in verse 25. He says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter, after describing the healing that believers received through the work of Christ, explains how they came to this spiritual healing. And in short, a conversion took place. A change, a turn happened. Peter describes the conversion this way. You were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here in this verse is Peter's seventh and final allusion to Isaiah 53. Maybe you can hear 53 verse 6 in what Peter has written which says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter reminds the believers that he's writing to that they once were walking away from God. They once were straying and wandering off as, as a sheep. They were living according to their own rules. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And this was before they met the crucified Savior. 
But friends, isn't this the story of us all? Weren't we all wandering on our own? Living life our own way, living by our own rules, doing what is right in our own eyes? Having no regard for what the Lord has said in his word? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We are all wayward and sinful. Now, describing people as sheep is a common biblical metaphor. We see it through the Old Testament and New Testament. And it really fits well because sheep are dumb, right? In fact, uh, I heard that one sheep farmer had said that there are three levels of stupidity in this world. There's dumb, dumb, and there's sheep. (laughs) Sheep are super dumb. And they wander off so easily. They don't recognize that staying near the flock and staying near the shepherd is the safest place to be. They are so stuck in this myopic gaze at the food that they're eating that they just keep going right in front of them and are so concerned with themselves and their own desires that they don't realize what's good for them. And they'll they'll follow that path of grass down into some horrible ravines that they can't get out of. It's said that if the shepherds go to, go to uh, save sheep in some of those places and they have to wait till the sheep is totally exhausted and almost on the brink of death because if they try to save the sheep uh, there while he's still healthy, he'll run off and potentially run off the cliff. They have to wait till he is totally uh, lost of all strength before he uh, can be rescued. They wander into these dangerous spots they can't get out of. They have no natural defense mechanism, which, by the way, just thinking about is an argument against evolution. Um, if an animal has no defense mechanism, how did it survive? i just just saying. Um, it, can't, it can't ward off uh, enemies. In fact, they all clump together and say, here we are, come get us. Um, but the point is they're, they're dumb and they're helpless. And that accurately describes us spiritually. On our own, we are helpless. We can't fight the enemy on our own. Our sin often gets us into trouble. But, Peter says, but you have now returned. Peter uses an exceptionally strong contrastive word here to say that there's a big difference. You once were strained, but now everything has changed. But now they have turned. Now describes their current state. Now, because Christ has borne their sins, they're in a new state of relationship with their creator. Now, there's many translations have the word returned here and kind of give the idea that they once were with God and then they strayed away and then they came back. I think the word uh, is legit- can be le- legitimately translated turned and simply refers to conversion. It's used that way numerous times throughout the book of Acts. Acts 3.19, 9.35, 11.21, just to give you a few. And so he's basically saying that before Christ you were strained, but now you have turned to Christ. Peter makes it clear that the reality of conversion is manifested in a believer's turning away from sin and to Christ. 
Conversion is not turning away from sin into some sort of uh, purgatory middle ground. Conversion is turning away from sin, doing a 180 and turning to Christ. This is repentance. We repent of our sin, we put it in our rearview mirror, and we go to Jesus Christ. See, the believer doesn't just get cleared of the sin and the guilt. The believer gets a shepherd and an overseer of their soul. Jesus Christ said, I am the good shepherd in John chapter 10. And this was a direct allusion to Psalm 23 verse 1, which says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus was explicitly saying that he was the divine shepherd. He was the divine shepherd who had come to lead and to feed and to protect his flock. Jesus is the shepherd of our souls tonight. This term is personal and intimate. It's a title that shows the constant caring love of Christ for us. You see, we, we don't know shepherds. We don't spend time with shepherds. We don't see shepherds on a regular basis. But see, shepherds, knew their sheep, and spent all the time with them, and did all they could to protect the sheep, to make sure that not one of them was lost. It was an intimate, close relationship. Maybe similar to how we have bonds with our pets. The shepherd had a bond with the sheep. So we have a bond with our shepherd tonight. Christ has come to shepherd our souls. But secondly, Peter says that Jesus is also the overseer or guardian of our souls. This title indicates an active and responsible care. And here's the point. Jesus suffered the terrible agony of Calvary so that we might be brought into his flock, into his family. Through his substitutionary death, we have been restored to our creator. We who have been wandering away have been brought near to Christ. Friends, we have a new relationship with Christ because of his work on our behalf. He will not be our judge in a future day. He is our savior, our shepherd, and our overseer today. And this should cause our hearts to love him even more. I want to finish this evening by having us think about the author of these verses. You see, if you're, if you're like me, we, you can walk away from these verses wishing these truths were on our hearts and our minds more than they really are. We feel the chasm between our daily lives and this biblical immersed worldview that sees Christ as all-encompassing. It seems that the biblical authors seem to have their, uh, all their priorities in place, and they just walk with this grand view of Christ perfectly all the time. But let's think about Peter, the one who's trying to help us focus on Christ. This is one who walked with Jesus. This is one who knew intimately the one he's speaking about. And Peter with a lot of ambition, but also with several serious stumbles. Peter was the one, 
you might remember, who tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross. That's right. The guy who wrote about the great sacrifice that Christ did was the one who stood in front of Jesus and said, no. You remember, it was right after Jesus had asked his disciples, who do they say that I am? They replied, oh, some say you're a prophet, some say you're Elijah. Jesus turns it on the disciples and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus then praises him and says, Bless you, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's praised. And, and Peter must have been feeling pretty good at that point. He's going, whoa, the, the Father has given me this, this great confession. The Lord's using me. I'm getting it. Maybe thinking that he's one of Jesus' strong disciples. You know, he's the one that spoke up. Everyone else remains quiet. He's really committed. But then he gets it completely wrong. The next passage, Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to be going to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests. And Jesus, or Peter, jumps in front of Jesus and says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. And Jesus rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Ouch. Peter the one who wrote of these great truths of what Christ has done on our behalf was the one who tried to stop Jesus from this even happening. But you know it doesn't stop there. Peter's stumbles just keep going because on the very night that Christ was betrayed and he was, he was facing the jaws of death, the cross was looming bigger and bigger in his sight. Peter, Denied any association with him. Not just once, not just twice, but three times. Peter adamantly swearing that he has nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. That man is not my man. I am not with him. I want nothing to do with him. And after his third denial, The rooster crowed, and the text says in Luke 22 that Jesus turned and looked at Peter and locked eyes with him. And Peter was crushed. The gaze of his Savior went right through him because he realized what he had done. And so he, he runs out, the text says, and he wept bitterly. His heart was broken because he had just abandoned Christ in the time, in the moment when Christ needed him most. And friends, as I reflect upon the testimony of Peter, I'm encouraged because it reminds me that the man who wrote these verses knew what it meant to trample on grace. He knew what it meant to be a sinner. He knew what it meant, he knew the pain of 
betraying his Lord. He knew deeply that he needed his friend and Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, to bear his sins in his body on the tree. See, this truth was not a distant truth for him. It was something he knew deep down. And we also know that Peter knows what it means to be restored, to be brought back into that fellowship with his Lord. John 21 describes this account. Jesus forgives Peter, welcomes him back, and commissions him to go and be about his work. And so friends, no matter where you're at tonight spiritually, you need to go to Christ. Maybe you've grown up in the church and you're wandered away from him. Or maybe you haven't wandered away outwardly, but your heart is wandering away. Go to Christ, the shepherd and overseer of your soul. If you've been walking with Christ for many years, tonight, gaze upon him anew and grow closer to him as you see his sacrifice on your behalf. If you've never trusted in Christ, if belief in Jesus is something you do not know, then I encourage you and call you tonight on the authority of the word of God to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ. He has opened the way for you to receive forgiveness. And it's only through him, only by trusting in the sacrifice that he did on your behalf, that you will receive forgiveness, that you will receive life, and you will be restored to your creator. May we all, on this Good Friday, go to our Savior and friend, Jesus of Nazareth, and embrace him as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Let's pray together. Our Father, We recognize that as we look at this text, that we are so undeserving of what Christ did on our behalf. It says that he bore our sins, but Father, there was nothing in us that would entice him to do that. For we only bring our sin and our failure to the table. Father, I pray that tonight that you would use these words that Peter wrote so long ago to direct our gaze afresh and anew to our Savior. May we see his abundant love. May we see his willing sacrifice. And may we go to him. May we draw near to him in humility, in love, and in repentance. We thank you that you have opened the way of life to us. It's in our Savior's name we pray, amen.